Great. Thanks very much, John. I mean, you're absolutely right. I believe God has been preparing us, speaking to us for what he's going to say to us. Sometimes it's great when you have something of a message planned and you just see the Lord beginning to speak and touch on different aspects of what he's put in your heart to say. And I really believe that's the case this morning and trust God's been working in in your heart through the prophetic words that have been coming through. We, kind of, uh, we weigh these things, don't we? But we believe God speaks to us in this way. And so thank you to all those that have come and shared. Just a great prayer that Helen led us in as well. That was a good one, wasn't it? Just, Lord, speak to us. Lord, empower us. Wonderful, wonderful prayer. And then that's just a beautiful song that uh, Dave just... Um, I, had, I think it was Dave. I had my, I had my eyes shut. I was just enjoying it. But uh, wonderful, just the way that God is speaking to us. And we're going to be walking through some of these things this morning, we're starting a new series, uh, our Advent series, really in the lead up to Christmas. And yeah, it's, it's coming really quickly. We're chatting to a friend this morning. Yeah, it's, kind of, it's, it's coming um, uh, in a few weeks' time, it will be Christmas. And so we're starting our Advent series. And um, I don't think I was involved in kind of choosing the passages. So I, I turned uh, to the passage that I was going to speak on this morning as uh, to start our Advent series. And um, I thought, oh, no. <laughs> It's, uh, it doesn't seem at first like a Christmas passage. I don't know if, you know, things you associate with Christmas, kind of um, peace, joy, love, light, kind of good things. We associate good things with Christmas. And this passage comes at the end of um, a book called Two Kings. It's kind of one and two kings. And really, uh, although this, this book of kings, it's a record of about 400 years of the history of uh, God's people, of Israel, in fact, um, but it kind of starts off okay. You have Solomon kind of coming to the throne. But it, it then goes to bad, and then from bad, it goes to worse. It just, uh, it's, uh, there's one bad king after another, it seems, and things do not go well with God's people. In fact, someone's called it how to lose a kingdom in 400 years. It just kind of, it goes downhill. And we're preaching right from the end of that kind of downhill trajectory this morning. We're looking at what it says here. And really, it's quite a dark time. But there is, if you stick with me, there is light at the end of the tunnel. So I'm just going to take you on the journey that I went on as I looked at this passage. We're going to start off, really just a bit of background, that the, uh, as we kind of come to this point, this last chapter, it's 2 Kings 25, the northern kingdom of Israel has been, uh, where it's kind of taken off, in, it's, it's disappeared, it's been overthrown by the Assyrians, and the, the Babylonians are now kind of attacking the southern kingdom and are about to kind of, or have begun in fact, to take them away into exile. So I'm reading this and I'm looking for some Christmassy encouragement for us this morning, some good news, some good verses that we can encourage ourselves from and uh, strengthen ourselves from as we kind of prepare to kind of come into the the, the Christmas season. So this is how it starts in verse 1. In the ninth year of his reign, that's Zedekiah's reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the 11th year of King Zedekiah. And just to give you a bit of geography, I've got a map up here. I'm sure you kind of have a rough idea where these places are. There's Babylon over there. There's Jerusalem. There's, there's Egypt. And um, Babylon has already come once. In fact, it's, it's, 
There's uh, two kings that have been previous to Zedekiah. Zedekiah has just been put on the, on the throne by the king of Babylon as a kind of a puppet king. And before him, there was Jehoiakim and Jehoiakin. And these guys, along with Zedekiah, they are not walking with the Lord. We've heard about walking with God. They were not walking with the Lord. In fact, we read, we read they did evil in God's sight. They really didn't do well. In fact, they, they started looking to Egypt for help. The Lord was there. He said, look, look to me. I, I'm your shield. I'm your protector. I, I, follow me. And these guys, they, they bottled it. They didn't do that. And they looked to Egypt. And you remember, Egypt is the place of slavery that the Lord had brought them out of. And so bizarrely, these guys, when there's danger in the, kind of at their door, they look to Egypt. They look back to the place of slavery. And they look there for help. And so these kind of kings don't do well. And along comes Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and he, uh, well, he starts to take them off into exile. He, he clamps down, as it were, on their rebellion. And of course, Egypt is no help to them at all. And he puts this guy, Zedekiah, uh, on the throne in place of Jehoiakim. Uh, Jehoiakim was Jehoiakim's uh, son, and uh, he, didn't, he didn't reign for very long. But King Nebuchadnezzar came along, and he took this this king, I think it's quite a young king, not been reigned for very long. He, he whisked him away. He took him away to Babylon and he put him in a dark dungeon there and he locked him up. And then, of course, Zedekiah, he starts to kind of rebel against Babylon and he starts to look to, to, to other places for help and security. And so along comes Nebuchadnezzar again. It's kind of predictable. It's history repeating itself. He hasn't looked to the Lord. Along comes Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, this is where we're reading in this first verse here. He besieges Jerusalem. Now, just remember Jehoiakim. We're going to come to him in a little bit later on. But right now, let's continue reading these verses. We've read verse 1 let's, and uh, verse 2. Let's look at verse 3. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. So they're completely surrounding this city and no food can get in and they run out of their reserves. And after a while, they begin to starve. There's no food. And it's actually worse than that. We read Jeremiah, is in the, a prophet, is in the, in the city and he's kind of warning the, the, the people and war, warning the king there. Look, follow the Lord. Do what he's saying. Don't kind of look for help for, to elsewhere. Look to him. And as this famine begins to bite, Jeremiah records that they began even eating their own children. It's a horrible picture. It's hor- this, this city is, is kind of rotting as they've turned away from God. And they have this, this mighty king outside of their gates with his army besieging them. And things are, are just awful in the city. It's a terrible, terrible place to be. But things get darker. We read in verse 4. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war, did they fight? No, they fled. They fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls, by the king's garden, and the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of the Arabah. So the, 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 the fighting men ran away, and the king with them. Kind of reminds me of that kind of Monty Python. I don't know if you remember. There's a brave Sir Robin. Brave Sir Robin bravely ran away when danger reared its ugly head. Brave Sir Robin bravely fled. And there's the fighting men leave the city. There's a, they, they, a breach. Off they go. This is terrible. The people are starving in the city. And now they're kind of abandoned by the king and these fighting men. But going down into verse 5, it gets darker still. 
The army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then the, 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 they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. This is terrible. They captured the king. But it gets darker still. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. This is dark. This, it, it doesn't get much darker, but actually as you read on, it does. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it, it gets darker still. The Babylonians burned down the house of the lords. They burned down the king's house. They burned down Jerusalem. They broke down the walls of Jerusalem. The rest of the people, many of them carried into exile, leaving just the poorest to work the land. They stripped the treasure out of the temple and they broke it up into pieces and they took it away with them into Babylon. And then they put the priests who served in the house of the Lord to death. This is a dark, dark time. It doesn't get much darker than this. But it's not a random event that's taking place. It's not just bad luck. It's not unexpected. This is exactly what God said would happen. He'd warned them. We've heard about warning this morning, haven't we? God warned his people. He said, if you don't look to me, if you don't walk with me, this is what is going to happen. It's not even unjust, completely unjust anyway. This is God's judgment upon these people. This is what happens when you don't walk with him. There's two sides of that, of course. One, in one sense, there's a natural consequence of that, of walk, not walking with God. There are things that happen because of the way that he's, he's built the universe, because of, because of the way reality is, because of who God is. There are consequences with not walking with him. But also there, there's his active judgment against evil. And these guys were doing evil. As you walk away from God, you begin to walk down a path of evil and doing things which are, are wrong. There, this, there was injustice in this city. The oppressed were, were overlooked. In fact, people were oppressed in this city. The weak didn't do very well as people turned away from the Lord. And this was God's judgment against his people. This is not... This is, in fact, even in a sense, less to do with the king of Babylon and more to do with, with God's purposes being worked out through this king, a judgment against his people. There's a warning here. It's like a doctor who says to you, look, if you don't stop drinking alcohol, it's going to destroy your liver and you're going to die. But if, if you would let me help you, we can do something about this. You can live. You, you're, you can come into good health. And God's been saying that to his people. It's an imperfect analogy, of course, because God is sovereign over everything in a way that a doctor is not. And God is the, is the author of life in a way that a doctor is not. But nevertheless, I hope you can see there's a warning here. It's a warning for us. Perhaps it's a warning for you this morning. Don't walk away from God forever. The consequences are catastrophic. God will bring judgment against evil. There are consequences for not walking with God. As I say, God's been warning us even just gently this morning. But back to two kings. Several years went by and all hope seems lost. And then, finally, at the end of this chapter, at the end of this book, we get a, a glimmer of light in the darkness of judgment. In the depths of despair, there is a, a ray of hope 
And in the cold ashes of defeat, there is this glowing ember that we can just see that still glows with the promise of God's grace and life to come. There's hope right at the end of this chapter. And now we can sort of get, feel a bit more Christmassy. There's something going on here that is, that's pointing to, to, to some wonderful, uh, wonderful way in which God's plans will be fulfilled. Yes, God is true to his promises and he will come against evil. He will, he will judge evil. And yet also there is promises that he's been making all the time to his people, promises of grace and kindness and restoration. And here we begin to get just a glimmer, just a glow of those promises. And uh, of course, that they begin to be fulfilled fully uh, in the New Testament, in the coming of Jesus into the world. But um, let's, let's just look now at some of these three verses we're going to look at, three verses which give a ray of hope. Three things, which three verses which speak of a key, a chair, and a table. We're going to look at a key, a chair, and a table. So let's go through them briefly together. First, 27. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, do you remember him? He was uh, the young king imprisoned in a deep, dark dungeon in Babylon and uh, for his rebellion... And here we find him again, right at the end of this, this book, this downhill slope of uh, God's people. And here we find him in the 37th year of exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month. Arwell Marduk, uh, says in the NIV, the ES, ESV calls him evil Merodach, Merodach which is uh, uh, an interesting name for the king here, the king of Babylon. And in that year, the, he began to reign, this Arwell Maraduk or Evel Meradak. In this reign, where he, in this year when he begins to reign, here's the verses which kind of leapt out of me, and I thought, phew! <laughs> ah, I've got, we've got something we can look at that's going to encourage us this morning. This king of Babylon, this evil king of Babylon, he graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. He graciously freed this king from prison. A Babylonian king ascends to the throne, a new one ascends to the throne, and upon that occasion, he takes the keys of the prison door that this enemy king is locked in, this pit that he is in, and the, the, the gates are open, the prison doors are open, and he lifts this king out of the pit that he has been in for years and years and years and years, and he graciously frees him. Now, I know there are various kind of theories and speculations as to why he might do this, but as I look at the text, there's no reason given. It's simply presented as a gracious, merciful act, simply because the king has decided to do that. He frees this king from prison. Now, the key to understand this, of course, is that these Babylonian kings, bad as they are, are acting as instruments of God outworking his plans and purposes. Of course, the, the first one, Nebuchadnezzar, is acting as God's judgment against his people. And now we find this second king, Arwell Maraduk, is there, and he's acting as God's means of grace to his people. 
This is God acting sovereignly. These kind of Babylonian kings, they they didn't worship the Lord. They they were as far away from him as you could get. And yet sovereignly, he's working through them to carry out his purposes. And so we can see that so clearly. We know it in the judgment that we've had before because God said that's what he will do. But now in this incredible verse here, he graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. Why? Just because he wanted to. Just because he could just because he decided to. Jehoiakim hadn't done anything good to deserve that. He was an enemy king in prison for rebelling against this Babylonian king. And now he frees him from prison just because he wants to, just because he can. And of course, this speaks to us. It speaks to us now because mankind is under God's judgment. In the same, same way, we have rebelled against God. And we come into a prison, therefore, of God's judgment. We've not done what we should do. There's a captivity so deep that comes upon mankind that we don't even want to want to want to want God. We want nothing to do with him. But wonderfully, gloriously now, Jesus has ascended to the throne. And he says, I have the keys to death and Hades. The consequences for our sin, the consequences for our rebellion against God were terrible. The prison of death and sin, and it just, it was not good. And Jesus says, I have the keys to death and Hades. And wonderfully through him, through Jesus, we are set free from God's judgment. We're set free from the sin that led to God's judgment, that put us under God's judgment. We're freed even from the dungeon of death itself. You can see why my ears pricked up as Ralph began to talk about prison. He probably didn't even know why he was laboring that point there. But this, it's because God has freed us from this prison of sin. There's prisons naturally that people are in, and this king was in a natural prison. But it speaks to us now that we're in a, we can be in this prison of sin under the judgment of God for the things that we have done. And Jesus ascends to the throne, and he has the keys to death and Hades. He has the keys to set you free from sin. He has the keys to set you free from death itself. Physical death, yes, we will rise again. We'll talk about that in a moment. But wonderfully, even now, freed from the power of sin that it has over us. Now we don't even want to want to want to want God. And as we're freed from that prison, we then love God with all our heart and our soul, our minds and our strength. Jesus has risen with the keys to death and Hades to set you free. His plan is to set you free. His desire is to set you free. Even if right now you don't want anything to do with God, his desire is to set you free. He wants to set you free. And the initiative is his in setting you free. If he wants to set you free, he will set you free. We're wonderfully freed, not because of anything we've done. We've disqualified ourselves, just like this this bad king of Israel had done nothing good. He'd rebelled against God and against the king of Babylon, in fact, And he was freed graciously. So too, we are freed as we put our trust in Jesus. What he's done for us counts for us. His death on the cross counting for our death. Jesus went into the grave. There's a picture of of, of Jehoiakim himself is actually a picture of Jesus here. And we're, we're seeing very dimly. I'm not saying it's kind of on the surface jumping out at you. But as it's got so dark, we began to, our eyes have become accustomed to the dark. And we start seeing what God is doing. We start seeing glimmers and pictures of Jesus. And this Jehoiakim himself, he's gone into the grave and now he's rising out of the grave. 
And what happens first to Jesus happens to us through faith in him. And as we put our trust in Jesus, we come to know that we did actually go into the, we died in Christ. His death counts for us. We died in him. We went, as it were, into this, this the punishment for our sin has been paid. But we've also risen with him out of the grave. These are wonderful Christmassy truths as I begin to read. But we're only in the first verse here. Now let's move on into verse 28 because it gets brighter still. Jehoiakim isn't just freed from prison. Verse 28 says, And the king spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. He spoke kindly to him. I mean, I'm, going to, I'm not going to spend too long on that part of it. I want to move on to the second part of the verse. But just to pause there, God speaks kindly to us. If you're a, a, a son or a daughter of God, if you put your faith in Jesus, you can hear God speak kindly to you. Maybe you didn't have a father who spoke very kindly to you. Maybe you did. In God, we have a father who speaks kindly to us. He's not harsh with us. Even when he brings a correction, as perhaps he did this morning, there's a gentleness to it, there's a care to it, there's a love to it. He speaks kindly to us. And this Babylonian king, he could do anything he liked. He'd probably done some terrible things. And suddenly he's speaking kindly to this man that he's released from prison. It's your birthright, if you're a believer, to hear the Lord's voice to you, speak kindly to you, words of love and encouragement affection, yes, sometimes correction. He speaks kindly to us. No longer words of wrath, but words of love to us. But I want to move on to the second half of this verse because it's so mind-bogglingly bizarre. And I hope, I hope you can see it as well as we kind of, if, if you kind of read through the whole of this chapter, you just, these verses at the end are just bizarre. Right at the end of this downward slope of uh, God's people kind of going away from God, of kind of wrecking everything, everything has gone wrong. And now here we see this kind of ray of light in the darkness. Not only does this king release and lift up this man from this pit, he seats him at the highest place at his table. He gives him a seat above the kings who were with him in Babylon. I love that... uh, um, John started uh, with uh, that, that uh, scripture that talks about us being redeemed from the pit. He redeems my life from the pit and crowns me with glory and honor. That's what's being spoken about here. As this king is not only freed, he's not like, no, go, go your own way and do your own thing. He's not just freed in that sense. He's placed in a position of honor, of power, of privilege, of authority higher than the other kings. Is that not bizarre? To you, why is this going on? Well, it's an it's a encouragement to us. It's a picture of what would come uh, to us who followed later on. He's not just given any seat. He's given a seat above all the other kings. There is such favor shown here. It's mind-boggling. The depths from which this king has come, locked in this darkest dungeon, lifted now to this high seat with the king. From the darkest dungeon, he's now at the dizzy heights of favor. Again, it's a glorious picture of what happens to us in Christ. 
Jesus, who, who was raised from the grave, raised to life, but then ascended to heaven, seated at the right hand of God. He, he was raised from the depths of darkest dungeon to the heights, seated at the right hand of God in authority and power. And of course, as we put our trust in him, we are united with him. And what happens to him happens to us. We have his relationship with the Father, don't we? Sons and daughters of God. And so too, we're lifted from the grave in Christ and seated in heavenly places with him. It's a place of favor and honor and authority. We have authority to bring God's kingdom in, in prayer, in actions, in words. We were praying for our hands, weren't we? We were praying for our feet. God, would you powerfully work through us We've been lifted to a place of authority. If you're a believer, you're seated with Christ in heavenly places. Now, we're, we're opposed, of course, and, and we, we look like we're operating in weakness, but we need to remember the reality that we're seated with Christ. We need to pray with confidence, given the place that we are seated in Christ. We need to act with boldness and courage, given where we are seated. We need to speak with authority, with gentleness and care and respect, but nevertheless with authority because of where we're seated. We're seated with Christ in heavenly places. Just like this, this Israelite king, I mean, he's, he did nothing to deserve it. He messed up. You might think, well, you don't know my life. You don't know what I've done. It's irrelevant. In Christ, you're seated with him and you have authority and power to bring God's kingdom in. That's where our identity is, and that's where we act out of. We pray with confidence, we act with boldness, and we speak with authority. Because it was always God's plan. If we go right back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, it was always God's plan that his people, that Adam and Eve, were placed there in the garden to what? To rule, to extend God's kingly reign over all the earth, that the earth would be filled with his glory, that things would line up with who God actually is, that his plans and purposes would play out. And so too, as we put our trust in Jesus, if you're a believer, you're lifted with Christ in heavenly places. You're seated with Christ in heavenly places so that you can bring God's kingdom in. You have authority to do that. You have a place of favor with the king, with Jesus himself. But it gets brighter still. And we'll finish on this last verse, verse 29, actually 30 as well, but focusing on 29. It gets brighter. It, gets, it got very dark through kings. And if, you've, if you stayed the course and if you plowed through kind of one bad king after another, you get the pleasure of these last verses. And in fact, they impact you all the more because you've seen how mankind left to his own devices. They wanted a king, remember? They said, give us a king, give us a king. And he was going, that's just, God was going, that's not going to work out well for you. Because he had a king that was coming himself, incarnate in the person of Jesus. And it did not work out as mankind did their best. It went from bad to worse to worse. And in the darkness, though, God begins to act again, even through these evil Babylonian kings, to speak about and to uh, indicate what he would do uh, in the coming days. But let's just kind of get the final goodness out of these last couple of verses from this uh, dark book. Let's let this light shine to us and speak to us. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given, by him, given to him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lives. Well, I don't need to unpack that too much, do I? Can you, can you see what that's saying? Just these verses here. It's, well, we'll, again, we'll just talk briefly about the first bit. Well, I want to major about the table. I want to, I want to linger on the table. 
He changed his garments. And hasn't God been speaking to us about that through the book of Colossians? Hasn't he been talking to us about taking off the old and putting on the new? Hasn't he been speaking to us about this, these old clothes that we used to wear, that we, the, the actions, the things we used to do, the things we used to say, no longer appropriate. Now we're, now we're in Christ. Now this new creation has come to us. We've been born again. Now there's new clothes to put on. And first and foremost, this is a clothes, the righteousness of Christ that we are clothed in. As we're seated at the king's table, we have Jesus and what he has done for us. He lived a life that we should have lived. And it's given to us, credited to us, that we might be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That when our heavenly father looks at us, he doesn't see all the grot that you've done. That's been dealt with. That's been left in the grave. Now as we've been raised with Christ and seated with him, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And as he looks at you, if you put your trust in Jesus, he doesn't see all the kind of grotty things you do, the things that flash through your minds, perhaps the things that you've done wrong, you're ashamed of. He sees the righteousness of Christ and he deals with you in that respect. And he loves you in that respect. The same love that is poured out upon Jesus because of his perfect obedience, day by day, moment by moment, in Christ is poured out upon us. We have clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But of course, there's a responsibility in us as well to put off the old and put on the new and act in a different way. Begin to act and speak in a way that reflects what has happened to us on the inside. And Colossians, again, as we read through that book, talked about acting in kindness and gentleness and patience and forgiveness and all these things. We put these things on. So here's this king sitting at the table, sitting at the king's table. He's, he, and he just must have been pinching himself. Yesterday he was in a dungeon. Yesterday he was in the deepest, darkest dungeon. These were pits. These were horrible things. Don't think of kind of modern day prisons, certainly in this country. This was not a good place. And he must still be blinking in the brightness of where he's now sitting. The food that is now set before him as he sits at the king's table. The king of Babylon, who reigned over the, sovereignly over this huge swathe of land, who has just crushed uh, Judah and carried everyone off into exile. And here this, this king is, who had rebelled against the king of Babylon. He's sitting at the table, kind of blinking in the light. Yet he, before, I guess, he would have eaten cockroaches and rats. And now he's got caviar and ratatouille, or I don't know what the Babylonian equivalent is, but it's like, this, he's been there, I think, for decades. A long time he's been there. And now he's in the light, He's seated at the king's table with his food in front of him. This is where he dines regularly. This is his regular seat, eating at the king's table. And of course, it speaks to us who are seated at our king's table, at the king's table. David says of the Lord, he prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And so my question to you, in fact, the question of this passage to you, if you're a follower of Jesus, is do you dine regularly at the king's table? Is that where you're seated? Is there a table spread before you, even in the presence of your enemies, even in the presence of difficulty and challenge? Do you know the king's table spread before you with choice delicacies? Or maybe you're thinking, what is that? What are you talking about? What, is, what does that even mean to dine regularly at the king's table? Well, it means as we read the Bible, as we read the, the whole context here, to dine at the king's table for us, for the believer, is that we delight ourselves in God and in who he has revealed himself to be in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. That's how you dine regularly at the king's 
table. It's not that there is something else, some choice food which we can enjoy and then we can go back to the Lord. He himself is bread of life to us. He himself is, is fine wine to us. He is these things. He gives himself to us. Jesus says, doesn't he, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? And don't we often, don't people kind of chase around those things and spend huge amounts of money on things that don't satisfy? Why? Listen, he says, diligently to me and eat what is good. Listen to me and eat what is good. Hear the revelation of God that is, that is, that is me and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, short love for David. So you see that. It's listening to Jesus. The revelation of who God is in Jesus is who we come to, and we dine regularly on him. We receive this revelation, and we take hold of it by faith. Yeah, this is what God is like. This is how he loves me. This is how he loves us. This is his plans for the future. This is his, his presence with me right now. This is how we dine at the king's table. So do you dine regularly at the king's table? I wonder if the band could come back. And uh, even as they come back, let me just spell this out a little bit more, just to help us, to remind us perhaps of what we already know. Dining at the king's table is meditating and thinking upon and listening to God's word. And you're doing it right now. If God has prepared your heart, as I believe he has done up to this point, and if you've been listening to what we've been talking about here, and you've been looking at this passage, you've been following along with what I've been saying, you are dining at the king's table. And I hope there's a certain satisfaction that's come to you. I hope you've tasted something sweet and something good in the grace of God revealed to us in Jesus. You've been dining at the king's table even now, coming here, uh, listening online. This is dining at the king's table. And it's good. It's the best thing that I've I know and I've ever heard and I've ever found that the grace of God has come to me in the person of Jesus, that though I messed up and I did things that I'm ashamed of and I wish I hadn't, and at the time I did them in full knowledge, I was in a pit, perhaps like many of you. I was in a pit of my own sin, trying to do things my way, not looking to God, but in fact looking to the things that kept me enslaved for help, looking to Egypt. And then wonderfully, I was freed by Jesus, who has the keys of death and Hades. He came along, caught me by surprise. I was arguing against him. Oh, God doesn't exist. Oh, there's no, Jesus is not who he said he was. No, there's no resurrection. And wonderfully, suddenly, actually, God revealed to me my sin in the pit. I suddenly realized I'm in a pit. I don't want to be here. And the Lord freed me. Jesus freed me from that pit, and he wants to free you from that pit. If you're in that pit of sin, if you're in a prison, you know God's judgment on you. You've heard this. Hang on a minute. I'm not even following Jesus. I don't know the God who made me. I've done things that are wrong. If you're realizing even this morning you're in a pit, you need to know that Jesus has the keys of death and Hades and he wants to lift you up out of that pit and put you in a new place. And hearing that, when I heard that for the first time, that I began to dine at the king's table as I put my trust in Jesus as my Lord and my Savior, as I began to trust that even though I'd messed up, he'd lived the life that I should have lived. As I messed up, I realized that he died the death that I deserved. 
and I put my trust in him. And as I put my trust in him, I began to dine at the king's table. And this was good. I'd never heard anything like it. Well, I had, but it just bounced off. And now it was going in because I could see it was true. And I was taking hold of it by faith. And I began to eat. I began to take in the goodness of God in the person of Jesus to me. And I, I trust and I hope that you've been doing that this morning. Maybe you're doing it for the first time right now. Maybe you're saying, I just don't want to be in this pit anymore. I don't want to live like that anymore. I don't want to look to Egypt anymore. I don't want to be enslaved anymore. I want to know freedom, true freedom, just walking with God, walking with my Creator. And there's a wonderful door that's opened up for you to do that. A wonderful key that's been given to Jesus to unlock your prison door. As you hear these words, you begin to dine at the King's table. I want to encourage you to do that, to turn from sin and turn to faith in Jesus dine with us at the king's table but maybe you're a believer it's just it's good every time hearing these words every time you know even as i'm kind of preparing this i'm dining at the king's table even you as you kind of close your door of a morning or of an evening and you open god's word you're dining at the king's table you're hearing about the goodness and the grace of god to you in the person of jesus dining at the king's table breaking bread's another wonderful way in which we dine at the king's table i mean, literally really we come around the bread and the wine We remind ourselves that Jesus' body was broken for us. We remind ourselves about his blood shed for us. As we think about these things, as we appropriate them by faith, as we proclaim them, we're dining at the king's table. This is rich fare. This is good food. The grace of God. We're meant to live on this food forever. This is the food that will keep you living forever and ever and ever and ever. This is where eternal life comes from. It comes from God and it's given given to us by grace. Praise is another way of dining at the king's table. And maybe we can do that right now. Why don't you stand with me right now and we're going to dine at the king's table. Even as we've been dining right now, we're going to dine again. This is regularly, see it says regularly, 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 every day, several times a day. It's not because you have to. He wasn't forced to, to dine at the king's table. Here's a man who had eaten cockroaches and rats and now he was at the king's table. And here we are at the king's table. Father, we thank you so much that we're invited, that we can sit here through faith in Jesus. Where Jesus sits, we sit. The love that he knows, we can know. Lord, this is amazing. This is amazing news. Lord, I pray, would you, would you unlock prisons this morning? Father, would you, would you seat us in heavenly places this morning. Well, let us know where we're seated, perhaps some for the first time, lifted from a dungeon, seated on high. Lord, here we are to dine at your table once again on, on the revelation of who you are to us in Christ. And I pray as we do that, as we sing together right now, as we praise you right now, Lord, would you fill our hearts with your love? Would you pour your love into our hearts by your Spirit? This is a way that we dine at the king's table we let the lord love us we say yes i receive your love into my heart not because of what i've done but because of what jesus has done and as you take hold of that by faith there's a wonderful overflowing that happens Whoa, once you realize that your sin the things you've done wrong are no longer a, a barrier to god's love for you and once you realize how much he loves you this is the one who is love And once you realize that, whoa, there's no limit to his love that's poured into your heart. 
And I pray right now in Jesus' name that he would pour his love, his limitless love into your heart as you take hold of the revelation of God by faith, the revelation of God that's come to us in Jesus, who died for you, who went down into the pit for you, who is seated now in heavenly places, and you are seated with him. God, would you lavish your love upon us? I pray now as we dine through praise and worship together. In Jesus' name, let's enjoy him together through worship. Thank you, Lord.